I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Gabby Gabby talks to Alan Hudson in My Life, My Music. doing now you okay yeah i'm good mate good and welcome all to part seven of my life my music with the governor alan hudson where we play the songs that remind him of those wonderful days and talk about the stories that shaped the life of one of british football's greatest talents mr alan hudson and beautifully played in by barbara streisand the way we were which pretty much nails what the program is all about Absolutely. You can't, I uh, mean, um, I've never met Babs, but um, I'd love to have met her. She's probably one of the greatest all-time singers in the, uh, yeah, you can't, you can't, you can't whack her, can you? Now, you know? doing this, this uh, monthly podcast with you, um, pretty much last month we were talking about partnerships and we were also talking about being alone and you played one of your favourite songs, Alone, by one of your favourite groups the Bee Gees and we're not we're all alone a trap by Rita uh, Rita Coolidge kept yeah. coming into my head and has done every day since another superstar of the 70s and one of her other songs because um, Peter Allen was, was a, again another thread for last month's show wrote so many songs for different artists and wrote songs for Rita Coolidge as well. And it was, or it would have been, his, his birthday on the 10th of, uh, of February this month. Well, the, the man, Peter Allen, was an absolute genius. Yeah. He was, uh, you know, uh, when you think Sinatra sang his song, uh, I've seen him both do it uh, live. Um, it's just phenomenal. It's it's just absolutely crazy. And I know I see something the other day. Um, James Taylor, he, he he did a show. I know what's his show. Um, I don't know. It's on YouTube or something. But I've I've got it on my machine. And he he was talking about when he went to um, 
Liverpool, which he'd never been to, and he went to Abbey Road and um, he met the Beatles, yeah, two of the Beatles for the first time. And actually, it was the Beatles that got him on on the road. It was quite quite a, an extraordinary story. And then all of a sudden, obviously, he went out and he it went in the world alone. But he was just uh, he was lost, and it it was incredible, really incredible story where. How you know football is an amazing story how our kids start off, but they can go to one club as a kid and you can go to another club and, you, and then you can never make it. But to actually go in the sixties to uh, uh, Abbey Road um, and and just be introduced to the, it, it was actually Paul McCartney. He was introduced to it. It might be Ringo was there. If Lennon was there, I don't know if. if if they would have went into partnership, I don't know. Because they were both a couple of crackpots, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, to, you, you know, where they, that's why I love the thing about music is you you just don't know. They, they come across these people along the way and they, you know, Elton won the award last night and Bernie Taupin, you know, you can't believe that they they done this thing together for for so long and they they never even used to meet up they just used to, he sent in the words and he put the music to it. it's quite phenomenal fantastic it, it is in, incredible isn't it and 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 you're right it is such a lonely world and a lonely place because as much as we look up at you superstars whether it's stage and screen or football and you have 50,000 people come to watch you and we all love you those moments when the game's finished, lots of times you guys are literally all alone. And when the career finishes and all them lingers on and angers on have gone, it's even more lonely a place, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's all you're all alone and forgotten, basically. Yeah. So you've got, you've got to be very strong and, uh, you know, get up every morning and remind yourself of, you know, the, the good times. But... Um, uh, going back to the James Taylor and uh, the McCartney thing, you know, uh, the, sorry, the the, the um, Elton John and the other Bernie thing is, uh, it reminds me of the football is me not getting on with managers and coaches. You know, maybe we'd have been better off working miles apart and not meeting. Just leave it, just you know, send you a note and say, go out and play on Saturday. And because they never used to meet up, they he just used to send him the words and he just put the music to it. But it's, um, and I've just had an hour with Paul Elliott, the great Paul Elliott that played uh, Chelsea, played Celtic. And yeah. I've just had lunch with him and we, 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 we agreed on this thing as about how our coaches and managers just can, can wreck your life, you know? Now, that leads us nicely into the podcast that you did with, with Anthony, um, Football's the Winner, and it was pretty much where you were talking to Anthony about the job and the role of a coach and a manager, which are very different roles. And Tony Waddington, where you were saying, you know, it's best probably they just give you a piece of paper um, on the Saturday. And, and I suppose, in essence, that's what Wad the God did to you um, he, he wasn't there day to day. He wasn't telling you what to do on the training pitch or on the football pitch. He just pretty much tapped you on the backside and said, I'll go out and produce. And when you come back, we'll all smile together, didn't they? Well, absolutely. He, he just, um, 
it was nobody's. It's nobody, you know, it was nobody's fault. I've met loads of fools in football in management, and uh, he, you know, again going back to what me and Paul just been talking about, it was, uh, it's having trust in the player, having trust in your your own uh, judgment, um, and if if you like a player, then. As, as Tony said when he bought me, he, he bought me and he, he didn't have to say nothing to me. He bought me and he knew I could play. All he all he needed to do was, you know, get my head right. And, you know, I think we spoke about it on the show before. He, he said, you're doing everything right, but you're doing it in the wrong order. Yeah. And and that was a great, uh, fantastic piece of advice, which I didn't really take on board as, I just knew that, you know, and it wasn't like a, a school teacher thing. He said, "Oh, you know, you know, just crack on doing what you're doing, but think about, you know, what get your priorities right is what's the most important thing in the world, and the most important thing in the world for me was and, and all kids growing up is Saturday afternoon your performance, and that was all Tony was worried about. He wasn't bothered about Monday to Friday. He just bothered about what you did on Saturday, and he and I'm sure." You know, I often think about a couple of games I played in, especially my first one when he was under a lot of pressure. You know, he paid a, a record fee for me, and uh, everybody around the country thought he was totally, you know, he's going to end up in a loony bin. And uh, after the game, you know, he was proved right, and I was proved right, and, uh, you know, he got me back, he resurrected me, and we went on from there he, he, he and then I got a new lease of life but that that is what I call great management you know these today are not great managers most of these managers today your Marinos and all these people even Guardiola's getting found out now you know now they're 22 points behind they're not uh, you know they've all they've all been with big clubs and uh, as my friends say in my local pub I could I could run that club and they're right because, you know, they've got a ready made team waiting there and you just say, go and play, you know, it's, uh, but I don't think they could run a, you know, that's why the, the chap at Aston Villa's done so well and what he's getting out of Grealish, you know, he's took hold of, he's gold of a team that they said are going to get relegated and Grealish has said he's not good enough. Now all of a sudden they're riding high. The fellow at Sheffield United has took hold of, took hold of them and you know they're proving everything wrong and it's good it's great for the game because they're football people they you know they they, they wear their heart on the sleeve and they they're they, they're not interested in jose marino and his ego and they're not interested about money they they want to get their team where they want it to be because they're local you know one's a, one comes from Sheffield, one comes from Birmingham, and they want their, they want this team to succeed. And I think that's that's quite refreshing. And I think it leads us nicely into our first track, a 10cc I'm Not In Love, which again is a big favourite of yours, and we, we have played it on, on a previous podcast. For most people that look at the title, I'm Not In Love, would be about a partner, a girl, a boy, or, you know. Um, but for you, it, it was about falling out of love with the beautiful game of football and the track that we're going to play, Someone Saved My Life by Elton John. And in essence, Tony Waddington did save your life, didn't he? Well, he did. He said, yeah, he saved, he, you know, he, he didn't only save my career, he saved, he saved my life. I mean, as I'd gone from, 
you know, uh, someone who's going to play in the World Cup in 1970 when I was uh, 19 to someone who was probably, you know, going nowhere. I'd lost my way and uh, I'd lost uh, focus. I'd lost everything. It was I, I wasn't in love. I wasn't in love with anyone. I wasn't in love with the game. I wasn't in love with my wife. I wasn't in love with things in general. And and it's easy to go the wrong way, you know. And and he came along and as you say, Paul, we yeah, you know, every time I I hear the song, it's it's so it's so me really because he he saved my life, you know. And uh, I'm sure that applies to Elton here. There's because every song he sings is has got a story behind it. Muggy nights, the curtains drawn in the little room downstairs. Prima Donna Lord, you really should have been there. Sitting like a princess perched in her electric chair. And this one more beer, and I don't.
it takes you back to that meeting in the park in, in Russell Square, doesn't it, with uh, Tony Waddington? Absolutely. It was, um, you know, I didn't know what I was walking into. Yeah. He's a stranger to me. He's he's waiting in a phone box in the park. And uh, I went there uh, because nobody else, you know, wanted to entertain me. And uh, I sat down with him with, for 15 minutes and it was pitch black. And uh, we have, the reason we met in a park because he didn't, he, those, these were the days when, you know, you didn't let other clubs know that you wanted to sign this player. Yeah. Uh, unlike today, you know, I, I pick up the paper every day and Manchester United want to sign 400 play, players. You know, that's not the way to manage a football team. If you want a foot, if you want a player, you don't let anybody know about it. And uh, that particular night, I remember going out. It was early evening, about seven. It was dark, and uh, and the doorman said, to the fellow on the door said, he's over in the park waiting for you. So you know, it was. Uh, that is all that was the proper way to run a football club you know he didn't want anyone to know that oh yeah you know today they go or someone see us in here they, they pick up the phone phone fleet street and it's all over the papers uh but tony wasn't like that it was yeah there was no ego involved different class old school and a proper manager and yeah what, absolutely mate absolutely. what we ha- what we have to do is um dedicate this this podcast to the memory of um, a young guy that sadly is no longer with us Dale Jasper at, at, at formerly of uh, of Chelsea yeah yeah he's uh, very very sad he's, he's finished on uh, this coming Thursday we're gonna, I'm gonna go there it's um it's very very sad it's um I think it's more I don't know it I, I mean I, it I had the same kind of problems as him, uh, but I, I was very fortunate that my father got me through it. Uh, where he said, "Take that notice of the coaches, take that notice of management. You'll, you'll be okay." Where, where Dow was at Chelsea when I got back in the early '80s from Seattle, uh, I stepped into training and I was training one morning and I see this kid and I thought, "Who the hell's this?" You know, yeah. and uh, I liked him as a lad. Um, he was mistreated at Chelsea. He was um, in one of my books. I said that um, I was. It reminded me of Sea Biscuit, the broken down horse, when I was broken down and what it and fixed me. That, that's what happened to uh, Sea Biscuit. Well, Dow Jasper needed a did a play under Tony Waddington. This kid would have been a superstar. And in the modern game, he's everything that we're crying out for, like Grealish. You know, we haven't got no, we haven't got no inspiration. This kid was so good, and uh, I remember being at uh, Stoke when I was coming to the end, and I said to the manager then, Bill Asprey, I said, look, go and get his boy up here because you know people at Stoke on Trent in the Potteries, they love a great inside forward, and and this this lad would have take, taken over and been, they would have been talking about him forever. He was he was a Tremendous, tremendous talent. But more importantly, he was a lovely lad. It was, it was so sad last week. And also the fact that you, I guess for a day, you were Stoke City manager, wasn't wasn't you? Well, I was I was manager for yeah for the train ride, really. Literally, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a gentleman's uh, agreement with you and the the chairman, and you were then the 
was it the Monday morning to arrive at Stoke just to fill in, well, dot the I's, cross the T's, and you were going to be manager of Stoke City. And I'm guessing players like Dale Jasper, you would have brought in and you would have brought the good times, I'm absolutely certain of that, back to Stoke City. But sadly, another twist of fate. Well, yeah, I mean, um, it's quite, I'm sure everybody uh, has, has a story. Uh, if only, um, um, like great managers, again, it's um, you don't if you want a player, don't let them out your sight till you sign them, you know. And the the chairman, I think Frank Edwards at that time, he was a he was a gentleman, he was a lovely man, uh, but I think he was probably an experience of being a chairman. Uh, had he been experienced and had Waddington been his manager. I think he'd have had a contract in his pocket and I'd have signed it on the Friday instead of waiting till the Monday. Yeah. Uh, and that's what you do. You don't let a player, if you want a player, you know, in the old days, uh, great managers didn't let players out of their sight till they sold them, yeah. till, they, till they actually bought them. Sorry. And um, that's what happened there. And I've done it on, a, it happens to me on another occasion. I, I went to Stanford Bridge in the early 80s, and Danny Blanchflower was manager, and he was, he wanted to sign me, says, come in in the morning, and uh, we were signing a contract, and I went down to my usual uh, little haunt in the afternoon uh, with a couple of friends of mine celebrating. I'm, I'm going to sign for Chelsea and play with Danny Blanchflower, who I admired so much, and uh, it it come on the news that he got the sack that night. So he, he should have signed me that night. So it's all about, yeah, you say it's fate. Fate comes along for all the wrong reasons, you know. It is incredible that sometimes, you know, in, in life you have these twists and turns and one door opens, another one closes, and if only. And when you made your England debut, the record that was number one at the time, they're just replacing Come Up and See Me by Cutley Rebel was If by Telly Savalas. And there's that common thread that runs through your career of of If, isn't it? Well, yeah, of course. Of course, it's, um, I mean, they say it's, a, it's the longest word in the world, isn't it? Yeah. You know, if, yeah. you know um, yeah, if only. But, um we can we can look back and I mean it's uh, reminisce and everything else if this if that and, and as I say everybody's got a kind of story like this but yeah. they were they were they were stories that you know they were times where it it couldn't happen today this this wouldn't happen today you know it couldn't but then again I think that, that this kind of story followed me about yeah. to, to be quite honest Paul but again the if only and the if for for me, just being a mere mortal, probably makes a difference to my immediate family and one or two other people. For you, the if and the if only makes a difference to a football club and a generation of football players that that could have had that baton passed down by you. And who knows where these players would have would have gone and how much their lives would have changed. Well, absolutely. I mean. Um... We uh, we obviously do the music with the football and yeah. everything else, and it's uh, you know I always say about 
the Sonata thing, and you know, it took ten, it took Sonata about ten years to get to the top, through and fight all these people, all these record companies, and everybody else, and to prove that, that he was the greatest singer in the world. And then a few years later, he must be turning his grades at Spice Girls come along, and they were millionaires in two weeks. Yeah. You know, and it's and you think, well, you know, I'm not going home to play the Spice Girls tonight. I will put Frank on, yeah. and uh, times change, and it, yeah, it is. It, it's a terrible thing if only, but that that is that's a that's every walk of life, you know. Uh, but it, it seems it's more more so in I think it's more so in 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 the sportsman's life because how the money changes hands, and you know, you could be. You'll be very, very wealthy. But having said that, it, it really wouldn't have changed me. I'd have just, uh, I'd have had to stay in a little bit more if I had that much money. Another song that we're uh, going to play now. Again, one of your favourite songs that shaped the life of of you, Mr. Alan Hudson, was a song that um, you used to sing with Alan Ball while you was playing Five Aside, Magic by Pilot in 1975, I think that come out, The Year, and you two, unbelievable talents that destroyed uh, West Germany, the world champions, in, uh, in March of 1975, again, if only you and Borley and, and Tony Curry would have been put in that midfield trio, that would have been my blueprint to take England, not just to the World Cup finals, but to um, to win them. Well, yeah, again, it's one of our conversations again today yeah. with Paul. It's, uh, it's all about management. You know, you can be the best player in the world, but if um, even going looking at Lionel Messi, uh, one one man come along one day and see this this genius and, and stuck by him, where a lot of people to, in today's game, they say, well, well, he's too small, he won't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's all about getting lucky and having the right man in charge. But uh, around that time in 75, I think we we spoke about it on your show before, that Don Revy didn't want to pick Alan Boyd, didn't want to pick me, and uh, he, he chose, he could have played us in two or three games before that against Czechoslovakia and another couple of teams, but I'm sure he said to a few people, I'll, I'll, I'll save these two for the world champions. I don't think they can hack it. And uh, when we did hack it, you know, we was we were going in training afterwards singing uh, It's Magic, you know, how, how magic is that, you know, to that not only that it wasn't about the performance, it's, um, it was all about football. Yeah. But he didn't want us, you know. But you know, Paulie and Paul and I were were a lot alike, you know. We we loved playing, and if if we played well, it was magic. Uh, and we went out and enjoyed ourselves, and it was magic. And that's the way football. That is the way football is, and that's the way life should be. Everything, you know.
I remember I go, I, you know me, I, I go into movies as well, like Sleepers in Seattle, and when you know, you know Tom Hanks and that, you know, you know it's magic. You know, life is life is magic. It's all about magic, you know. But but that there isn't no in football today. There is no magic. It's um, uh, uh, to be perfectly honest, it's 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 quite boring to tell you the truth. There are one or two players that do produce them pockets of magic. And I think that the game is changing a little bit. It's getting a bit more... Um, teams are going more forward and, and attacking, whereas, you know, we have had or we've come through a, a system and a situation where there's been an absolute fear of getting relegated from the Premier League. And to a certain degree, it's still there and it will still there because of the amount of money that's, that's up for grabs just to stay in the Premier League. And I guess now we're in February, we're going into March, you know, the pitches are starting to dry out, the games are getting, you know, um, the games are running down and there's a lot more fear that's going to come into the game. So you're going to get a, probably a lot more boring games towards the end of the season when there's six points up for, for grabs. Well, absolutely. You know, the, I mean, um, we've got a situation at West Ham, haven't we? Yeah. The, the, the Golden Sullivan, they bought, they took over, I suppose, supposedly West Ham supporters and Karen Brady. But they're not. They're not. They're, they they took over the stadium because it was an Olympic stadium, and and everybody now wants them out. You know, yeah. it's uh, they've done it for all the wrong reasons. It was nothing to do with them being West Ham. It was uh, they should have. If they love West Ham, they 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 had the opportunity to clean Upton Park up. That's where their home was. Uh, but it, it doesn't happen. Yeah, it, it doesn't happen today. They're, these people that run football clubs, they sit there in their fur coats and their fur hats at uh, the Olympic Stadium, and they got a lot of unhappy people standing, you know, sitting around the terraces. So, I mean, they got they got they're getting forty odd thousand, fifty odd thousand people in the Olympic Stadium, and that, but they believe that they're all West Ham supporters. Well, they've never had fifty odd thousand supporters in their entire life. Yeah. These are all, these are, um, a lot of those people are people that, you know, they come over to this country and they, they live all over land and what they say, go and see what the Olympic Stadium's all about. It's, it's, it's the furthest thing. If, I, if there was one club in the country I wouldn't want to play for at this moment, it would be West Ham. You know, the fans are about, you know, my friend told me the other day West Ham support from one side of the ground to the other, they, they're two miles away. Or two two hundred yards away. I mean, how can you how can you be that far away? You know, football field is you know our days. You've you've got to be on top of things. West Ham used to be a tough place to go to because the the fans were on top of you. And it was and and and, and you're where you are. Walls Walls are one of the, the the greatest stadiums. The old walls. When you know, I, I remember taking a throw in there one day. I was sitting on someone's lap. <laughs> you know, you, it was basically, you know, there was only there's that much space between you. You could touch the pause, but that that was when the game was great, you know. But that's what they've done, haven't they? They've, they've pretty much taken the soul out of football, and they've built these soulless football grounds. Um, they 
probably have a capacity like the um the, the London Stadium does there of fifty thousand. But you know, I'd rather have thirty thousand hammers that, that that are proper mad for it in the old chicken run and get him right behind the team and brush that ground up and give it you know give it the tarting up that it needs for for the modern age. But you know, keep that soul of football and and I just think yeah, I mean football it, has it, gone wrong. Absolutely, Paul. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's that's what gets the best out of the player. Yep. You know, uh, despite the supporters are the, the most important, without supporters there'd be no football. Yep. You know, but um, the players, are, you know, they don't want to be that far away from the, from the crowd. You know, they, they actually want them on top of them and they want to respond. You know, they want to hear. It's all about, um, that's where the adrenaline comes from. That's what make, makes a pump, you know, uh, the blood pump, you know, you, you, that's what you need to do. It's uh, and they're all they're doing, they're they're moving you further and further away from your supporters, you know. And and I guess in essence, when we had the terraces that were ripped out, that was another piece of the heartbeat of football that was ripped out. It was almost the crime of the century to do that to football. And that leads us nicely into your next track, which is titled Crime of the Century by Supertramp. And it's a song that you would have loved to have put to the video that you made with your good friend, uh, Tommy Wisby, one of the great train robbers, with um, the, the promotion of his book, Wrong Side of the Track. Well, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if ever a, if ever a song was should have been, I mean, it, it, I really wanted to do a video with Tom to, and and that would be the, you know, the 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 beginning of the uh, the video or the film or whatever documentary. I mean, it's it's the super super tramp do it fantastically, not even knowing that. Anything about the, it was nothing to do with uh, Tommy's achievement, or a lot of people don't think it's an achievement, it was a great achievement. Uh, but he was a wonderful man, and uh, it was a crime of the century. It was yeah. um, it was fantastic, and I think the most important thing about it is that um, what a lot of people don't understand, they, 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 they put them on the front pages because uh, there was a problem in London with the perfume affair, you know? And and the politician said, oh, "I've got a way of getting us off the front pages here, you know." And they put the, uh, and that's why they got such a heavy sentence. It was nothing to do with their crime. Uh, it was to do with the, the politicians uh, again, you know.
He's a wonderful man. Tommy was a wonderful man, and that, that I, I can't, you know, I, I play that song every now and then, and I just think of Tommy, you know. And Supertramp, a, a, a band that, that that you love. Do you know? Before I started doing all all these shows, whether it be at Fifty or My Life, My Music with you, and and talking to you, and you introducing me to so many different artists, different people, different bands, different different loads, of, and then I go and research. You know, I thought Supertramp were American, but they're back. They're from London, wasn't they? Yeah, they're they're from all. They, they I don't know where they. You know, I think that the, the, I when I first went to Seattle, I, I introduced myself. I went to the their uh, Breakfast in America show, and I introduced myself. I got tickets to the show, and then I asked. I said, I want to go backstage, and I met Dougie Thompson, yeah. who obviously, you know, and. Uh, I was with uh, Harry Redknapp, Jimmy Gabriel, and, and and a friend of mine from London. So I got four tickets. We we went backstage and met the lads, and it was the most incredible show. And I remember Dougie said to me, he said, uh, "If if this album don't sell, we're disbanded." And uh, me being a gambler, I should have said, "I should I want to invest in it," you know, because I knew it was going to be. And it was one of the all time. All, one of the all-time best-selling albums. Wonder, wonderful, wonderful group. Unbelievable group. And fantastic musicians. They started as just musicians, and then they started. It's, it's a little bit like the the Phil Collins scenario, really, because uh, when Pete, um, Peter Gable left uh, Genesis, they were going to disband. They said we're going to, you know. And Phil Collins said, "No," he said, "I can see." So well, you can't sing. We never heard you sing. He said, "Well, give me a try." And uh, bang! Look, look what happened to him. You know, it's all about um, confidence and, and and your own ability. You know. And Teddy Pendergrass of um, <laughs> Melvin and the Blue Notes. Originally, he was the drummer, and um, it, it was one of the you know sessions that they do, practice sessions that. Uh, um, Gamble and Huff, I can't remember now if it was uh, Gamble or Huff, said, what's he doing on drums? Get him out of front and sing. What a voice <laughs> he's got. And again, it's another situation where, uh, you know, and if only, and it, and it is incredible, and you're right. I mean, Phil Collins, you you could argue that um, Phil Collins took Genesis on and, and made them even better. Well, it's, um, I mean, Peter Gabriel went on to a different kind of music and he, he went on to a different level, but no one could ever say that, that they dropped their standards. No. Colin, Colin's just brought them something completely different. It's like uh, it's like saying 
me or Tony Curry, it's up United, he, he could be, he was better than me in so many departments, I was better than him in so many departments. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, we could all, we were all different in so many ways, but Collins, I see him in a show one night at um, the NEC and it was just incredible. And I thought, well, that was before I really got into Peter Gabriel. And, yes. uh, but he had moved on. Peter had gone on to, to do incredible things. He, the man's, he's just off the wall. The man's off the wall. Whereas Phil was, he, as I say, he was rated one of the best drummers in the world. His occupation is a drummer and he, he gets up and he does that. But it's only like, Again, it's only like being a footballer and a, a manager. It's only man to say, I can play in that position, give me a chance at that. I mean, Jeff Hurst at West Ham, he was a right half at West Ham and he was going nowhere. And um, I know Ron Greenwood liked him. And I, I, read the, I read the book and I know the story. That, and he, he said, I've, I've got to get rid of you because you're not going to hack it. He said, your last chance, I'll play you up front. You're a big lad. And they put him up front. He's got big shoulders. And he, he said, you got to run here and run there without. And the next thing you know, he scored three goals. The only man to score three goals in the World Cup final. So it's all about don't give up. Don't give up it, 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 this what you do because, you know, it, it, there's something inside you that you don't know, you know. I mean, Ersty told me this story that. He said, I was going absolutely nowhere. I couldn't play. Jeff Hurst couldn't play right half anyway. Yeah. You know, he was um, he was very good at, um, well, he, he was a terrific player. But, um, you know, uh, we, don't, we don't go into the Jeff Hurst thing, do we? Because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't talk about lucky. Some people are just born lucky, aren't they, you know? When he told me he aimed for the crowd uh, for the fourth goal and it went in the top corner, but if I aimed for the crowd, trust me, it went in the crowd. <laughs> and, and, and Phil Collins again, pretty much then followed Peter Gabriel and had a tremendous solo career, and and, and famously recorded the uh, the song Buster, which brings us back again to the great train robbers, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean. Um... Uh, I mean, I've, I've seen the film and all that. It's, yeah. it's just a shame. It's just a shame that they they couldn't have had Tommy doing a cameo. Yeah. And I, I spoke. I spoke to um, Buster. I was I was going to do a radio show with um, um, a friend of mine, and uh, and you know having famous people on there. And I phoned Buster one day. I said, "Like you come on the show." And yeah, this is before I knew Tommy. Yeah. And uh, a couple of weeks later, he'd hung himself. Um, so it's amazing how you don't know what these people go through, no. you know. And uh, it, it's, it saddens me, really, because just before Tommy, Tommy died, um, I, said, I said to him, mate, oh, I remember sitting outside a pub one day in North London and we sat there together and I went, mate, I said, all that time in prison when you, when you was, you know, training and keeping yourself fit mainly to get over the wall to get out (laughs) it was i said you you look so good you know and then all of a sudden about three weeks later he he has a stroke you know it's it's a bit unfair did you ever meet ronnie biggs al no i never did no um i i I, I, to, to be perfectly honest paul i 
I'm not one of those that, I mean, I used to, be, I used to live over East London. I'm not one of those that really, I've, I've met a few of the gangsters yeah. over there. Yeah. I'm not really one, I'm, I'm out my scene. And uh, Tommy was Tommy was just a, a one-off. He just come to one of my dudes one night when yeah. I come out of hospital and to, you know, to get to know me because he loves his football and we become great friends. One of your all-time favourites, and you have got lots of favourites. You got the Bee Gees. Um, we we must soon play the Beach Boys because you're a, you're a big fan of the Beach Boys. Alton John. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, you've alluded to, he's just picked up um, a, a, another gong to, to go in his trophy cabinet, which which must be amazing to sit there and have a look at Alton John's trophy cabinet with all the stuff that he's done. And and he covered the Beatles, didn't he? Lucy in the Sky with diamonds, which, again, he, he rearranged the the middle eight in that and he and done it very differently to the Beatles. But he had just, and he, he also done with with uh, with Tommy. He done Pinball Wizard as well. That that the Who um, brought out, and and Alton had an ability even with brilliant songs like Loose in the Sky with Diamonds and and Pinball Wizard to put his own stamp and his own mark on brilliant songs, iconic songs.
drift past the flowers The grouse are incredibly high Newspaper times Here's a view on the shore I think we we spoke about this before. I mean, and to go from there to uh, you know Lloyd Webber and the other thing with Lion King, yeah, uh, and to do that and make such a, I mean, he brought the he brought the place alive with that. It was greatest song. You know, it's uh, the man was an absolute. To to think when you go back to when he was Reggie and. You know, we all they all knew him at Chelsea as Reggie the T boy and, and he goes on to do it just goes to show that for those kids I I mean it couldn't happen today, I don't think because no, I don't think it you know mm. it couldn't happen today, you know, because there's there's too much of this television and um but he I he I think he somehow knew that he was gonna be a big, big star and I know your song put him on his way, but uh, the thing between him and Bernie Taupin was incredible, absolutely incredible. And I, that that could never happen again, you know. That could never ever happen again, you know. It's um, you know, not this, not in this day and age. To someone, for you to send me words and me to put music to it and it'd be so fantastic, it's just unthinkable. Incredible, and, and his debut at, uh, at Wembley was the 21st of June, 1975, which was uh, your birthday, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It was um, with me and Alan Ball again. We'd been at uh, Royal Ascot all week, and and uh, we were walking on about the second, third floor upstairs. We'd been there all week, and we were, I think we had about three hours sleep a week and, and he bumped into Adam, we bumped into David Frost and, and he's, and 
Ella echó a, a los niños a ver. Y dice, Roma, pero Pau es un Saturday. You like to come around? And I went, yeah, yeah. He said, but he said, only if you can, you know, if I can bring the mice, he used to call me the mice. So I said, he said, most certainly, most certainly come along. And and we, we went around there and that was there. And uh, it, it was... Um, It was a great way to meet because he'd been out playing tennis. He had his tennis gear on. He thought he was, he, he, he probably thought he was John McEnroe or something. <laughs> and, uh, and we're saying in the kitchen, he was, he was having a ding dong with uh, Russell High. And I, I said in one of my books, it's funny, Russell High at a party, you know. That's, that was the saying at that time. Yeah. And um, I said to Elton, you know, um, I'm coming to the, I'm coming to the show tomorrow. You better be good. And he, he said, "Well, what's it like playing at Wembley?" And I, I said, "Yeah, I, I think you're good enough, mate. I think you can you can act it." And um, the the Eagles were on, and the Beach Boys were on, and Elton followed them on, and just you know that was. Um, I mean, he I, I read his book quite recently, and he said he shouldn't, but they had to. Bring, promote the album didn't they yeah um it, he a lot of people fallen asleep but some entertainer i mean incredible entertainer Arguably. and he's still going he's still going and he's yeah, still yeah. still whacking it no, and i don't know how he's i don't know how he's got his hair he had his hair cut last night and he's still longer than mine <laughs> arguably our greatest entertainer uh, hasn't he been Elton through the years he's reinvented himself and he's been phenomenal and one of america's greatest bands the, the eagles uh, as you've alluded to were on the same bill i think Elton done his captain fantastic album didn't he and and the eagles uh, went on was that the first time that you'd seen the eagles and again they're a band that sometimes you don't realize how brilliant they were and when you hear an eagles track you you sing the songs i mean you might not get the words correct but but you know the songs because they're just like standards aren't they well they are but they, in that particular day when we walked into wembley and there was i mean there must have been 120,000 people there yeah you know the, all the goalposts were down and the people were all over the field and people in the stands and the and everything else is just it was incredible but the eagles were on when I, when we walked down the front i didn't know they were i didn't have a clue who they were And we just looking for a spot to sit on the field, really. And uh, we got down the front as close as we could. And uh, I can remember the Eagles going off, the Beach Boys came on and uh, just waiting for Elton to come on. And uh, it, it, I never even thought twice about um, the Eagles. And then about a few, six months later, they were one of the hottest groups in the world, you know.
was just, I mean, 1975, he was just, you know, in 1970 he'd done your song, but he he hadn't even really began to do mm. the great things he was going on to do. He just, he just, he's just a freak, the man's a freak. He just keeps coming up, coming up time after time. It is, um, I don't know how his voice gets better, I don't know. It certainly does. Best of My Love is the song that you've picked out from the Eagles. Is there a story behind that song? And also, before you answer that, while you was in America, did you ever visit the Hotel California? No, I never, no, I've never been there. I don't know where that was, but I'd like to have visited him. I'd really like to have visited him, uh, that hotel with them. You know, because I bet they had a good time there. And whatever hotel they were singing about, they sounded like they had a good time. Mirrors uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, on the wall and the ceilings. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It sounds like it sounded like a wonderful hotel. But um, no, I um, no. I mean, I did. I I went on from. Uh, the Eagles, obviously, I'm 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 a Jackson Brown man, and yeah. I and um, he was part of them. And although he wanted to be on his own, Jackson, they they all have Jackson. So I mean, I I just love that American scene, you know. I love them all, like you know, all so laid back, and they, you know, and it. And I remember the time when John Lennon and Elton were going off the radar. And they went, you know, they went to America and they were nearly finished. I mean, uh, I mean, it did finish John Lennon in the end, but they were nearly finished, but they were hanging about with all them, you know, you know, the Eagles and uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young and all these kind of people. And that is uh, America. That, if you remember years ago, you, they said you didn't, you didn't crack it until you cracked America. Yeah. And uh, that still applies. It certainly does, and it's you know, you don't realise how how big America is. I mean, most of them states are as, are as big as Britain. So if you're selling records and you're, you're selling the records in, in the UK, which is great, but when you sell America and you crack it in America, you really have cracked it big time, haven't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I can remember the Beatles going there and uh, the first finding. <laughs> Yeah, and it was like, uh, who are they? They were on, you know, all the, you know, all the top shows and all that, and uh, four young lads um, from Scouse Land, 
they were, you know, they didn't, they, they really, if only, if they could live their life again and appreciate what they had done, if they were, you know, uh, as I say, it was, um, it was, it was incredible what they'd done. Um, I just wish if I, if I, if we could live our life again, I'd like to be Ringo Starr because I think I'd be a better drummer than him, number one. And number two, you know, you know, you imagine them three didn't need a drummer, you know, it's like Brazil in 1970, they didn't need a goalkeeper, you know, Yeah, it, it was fantastic. I mean, when they broke America, they, I mean, it was wild, wasn't it, you know. And, that, and, and you won't see that. You'd never see that again. That couldn't happen today. No, many things couldn't happen today that happened then. And when we're referencing Brazil, let's just reminisce a little bit about George Rayner, who was the Sweden manager in 1958 and the first Englishman that, that took a, a team to the final of, of the World Cup. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um... It's quite a phenomenal story, really, and it, it, what I what I find quite amazing is that uh, not a lot of people know it. You know, it's a fantastic story. Um, he come around the corner from obviously from Derby, Burton, all that. He's um, it was quite a man, but I, I can remember being in Butlins and. Um, I was only only a kid, you know. My, I remember my mum went to play bingo, and my dad said, "Well, I'm taking Alan and John round a corner." And we went round at having this like at this coaching school. We were, you know, they somewhere to babysit the kids, and this little old fella was there. And uh, my, I remember my dad talking. And I don't, I don't even know if my dad knew. And I can remember my dad saying, "Oh yeah, my my son's my son's going to be a good players." And uh, and I never never realised until I, I you know a few years later that was George Rayner, uh, and I, I I followed him. I read his book. I read the history of George Rayner, and yeah, he, and he, he couldn't get a job in the end. England turned him down. It's incredible. Um, Stanley Rouse turn him down and he went back and he ended up working at Butlins, which is it just shows shows you how. If again, if only, if someone only knew the FA anything about football, George Rayner could have turned the whole thing around. Because ever since that, we've you know we've we've never really been great in uh, you know appointing the right manager. But it is an incredible story, and and again another one through you that I've you know looked at and referenced, and that book I've. I've gone online, I've ordered the book, so I'm going to be reading that book. And, and you're right, because he went from managing Sweden in the World Cup finals to I think his next managerial job was Skegness. <laughs> it's just yeah, absolutely. laughable, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I, I mean, they, he put him for the... Uh, when he left Sweden, I think he put him for the England job, and they, and they uh, yeah, they obviously they had to interview him, whatever he'd done. Well, and it's quite astonishing, really. And uh, he said, I, I managed Sweden against Hungary. So the, the problem you got is, you know, I know how to play against teams like the Hungarian. Yeah. And, uh, and Danny Rouse said, well, well, how would you play against them? He said, well, it's all about, this is a team game. 
Mm. He says, we have to work, you know, and, and the Wiggins have to do this and, you know, we have to do that. And we just, Sweden, he said, we just got a, a good result against Hungary, Puskas and everybody else. And, mm. and he said, are you trying to tell me that um, Stanley Matthews has to run around like a normal player? He says, well, no, he's a team player. He says, and and he didn't get the job. So, so really, basically, what George Rainey should have done, he should have lied to him. You know, he should have, you know, instead of telling the truth and and being honest and being more more important, being right, he should have lied to him. Yeah. He should have just and got the job and then changed it and said to Matthews, pulled him aside, and said, look, you you got to you got to do things differently. Here. You know, he said this is a team game. You can't stand on out on the wing waving. You know, and when you look to 1966, you see Alan Ball running up and down the right hand side, running Snellinger off off his feet. You know, George Rayner was right. Yeah. You know, so it's the same kind of thing in the same position, and people like Stanley Rouse. Um, you know, kept their job and all those people at the FA and nothing's changed at the FA. They still they still know nothing about the game. No, it, it is absolutely incredible. I mean, I'm reading at the moment, um, and by the way, they almost got a decent result against Brazil in the 58 final. Had it not been for Pelé, they they, they arguably might may have. But the magi- magical Magiers, I mean, they're a, they're a, a team that, that fascinates me to, to beat England 6-3 in 1953 at Wembley and then in, in Budapest uh, almost um, 12 months after in 54, uh, just before the World Cup finals um, in Switzerland, they'd put England to the sword 7-1. And some of the things that you that you understand and you educate yourself when, when you're reading, I mean, there's, there's a coach named Bella Gutman who who was um, a, a Jewish uh, lad that, that played football all around Europe, coached all around Europe. He was the one that identified Eusebio and won the European Cup in 1961 and 1962 for Benfica. And that's just not half of his story. He went. Yeah. For, he asked him for a pay rise and they told him to go and he put a curse on the club. But he could have come <laughs> to England and England didn't want him. Only Port Vale wanted to talk to him. And you're looking and you're thinking, this is Bella Goodman? Are you being yeah. serious? You're turning him down. He was the first coach to win the European Cup that wasn't a manager of Real Madrid. It's just laughable what the English have done over the years. Well, it's, um, uh, if, if it was a movie, if it was one of these modern-day movies, you mm-hmm. watch it, you wouldn't believe it. You couldn't make it up. It's... Uh, Again, it's the suits and it. it uh, the FA, they haven't got a clue. They, they haven't got a clue what's going on. They don't know anything about football. Um, I really, I really, it makes you wonder where it's going to end. Yeah. You know, they're like uh, they're they're basically politicians. Yeah. Uh, they know nothing about what they're doing running the country, and they're all. They earn, they earn a lot of money and they do nothing. They, I mean, if, if you can imagine coming home and, you know, they had to do a speech and, you know, at school or something, and, and the young kid said to them, what, what have you actually achieved over the last 50 years yeah. since 1966? They say, well, absolutely nothing, you know, because uh, they know nothing about the game. But they have got a good life 
and they've they've got a good life out of the game and uh, they don't care. They not only do they not care about the, the great players who've kept them in a job, but they don't give they don't give a monkey about the supporters that follow them around every two and four years to every big competition. They spend a lot of money on this country, uh, and the people that are running the country just haven't got a clue. They haven't. They really haven't got a clue about the game. It's quite incredible, isn't it? And I love that story that you was telling me about the uh, Palmerston. Was that the Lord Palmerston pub? that the um, Hungarian wrestler took over. And was that the same pub that you had the phone call on the Sunday night from Ron Greenwood, so if you wanted to play against Brazil? No, that, no, that, was, a pub. that was a different pub. That was one end of Chelsea to the other, yeah. <laughs> was it really? Uh, yeah, yeah. But the Palmerston was, uh, it, it was, uh, it was the pub in the, in the 60s and 70s, uh, the pubs that the Mancini's owned, and the Mancini's yeah. were, Tony was a, a Denny, they called him Tony, Thank Danny he was a corner man for uh, I've I've seen Fraser and everybody else in there as a kid and you know he was a big boxing man um, but then he 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 left uh, I went and said oh, well I come back he had gone Tony had gone bless him and Zibor uh, Zak Zibor had it and he was a he was a really nice man Hungarian man big man. And uh, he said to me, I was, I was standing above my pal, and Chelsea, I think Chelsea were playing at home. And he said, you played with Chelsea, didn't you? I went, yes, I did, yeah. And he went, oh, I've heard about you and Osgood and Cook and all that. I went, oh, yes, you have. I said, yeah, I've heard about you as a wrestler. <laughs> he said, no, but let me tell you, he said, when I was in Hungary, he said, the, um, the best team ever, used to come in my bar he said and whenever they came in i had to empty the place because you know it was chaos they they you know they maybe maybe look make george best look like he was a saint you know <laughs> uh yeah he said he said they were outrageous you know but that yeah it just goes to show you know it's only football managers of our you know if we're if they sex and if he had said that to dave sex and dave sex and might have lightened up a little bit and said oh well maybe what do you want someone playing for you sober and no good or do you want puskas playing for you that enjoys yourself you know and Pele enjoyed a beer as well because I remember when you played against Pele in 71 for Chelsea in Jamaica he uh, he walked into the bar in the early hours of the morning with a with a drink and a blunt on his arm didn't he? He did yes yeah it's the only time I was with Johnny Boyle and Tommy Baldwin at the time it was the early hours of the morning and we were staying at the bar and I couldn't believe that he walked in and he's got this girl on his arm and you know I was looking at the girl Obviously, I couldn't believe it because we'd been on the field with him in that night. And uh, but it was the first time I've seen Tommy Baldwin and Johnny Paul not look at a girl. You know, they <laughs> they were stunned. They just couldn't believe that they were in his company. You know, nor could I, obviously. But uh, yeah, he was a wonderful, 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 lovely, lovely man. Thank God he's still going. You know, because he's uh, he's well, he's done everything, hasn't he? Yeah. Another wonderful man that's still going, Jimmy Greaves. And there's a film coming out next week on the 18th of the 2nd uh, about his his life, uh, the Jimmy Greaves film. And you famously took Jimmy's number eight shirt um, at Chelsea, didn't you? Well, um, Bobby Tamlin took it and then I followed after Bobby. Um, 
But Jimmy Greaves was, I've, I've seen the, the piece in the Daily Mail today, yeah. got about six, six page put out, which is extraordinary. It's just a shame that they didn't do it a few years ago. Yes. And got him some money. They they, they do these things, you know, when he's unwell. Um, but Jimmy Greaves was, without a doubt, um, he's been the greatest, he's probably the greatest player Chelsea have ever had. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a great believer in that you can't, um, you can't really say that when you've got midfield players and front players and defenders and goalkeepers. But Jimmy Greaves was the most extraordinary player that played. You know, he he scored in every debut he ever played in. He yeah. he scored he scored so many goals. But it wasn't it wasn't Lineker had done that and Shearer done that. But they didn't do it the way that Jimmy done it. Jimmy. Yeah. Was just fabulous. It was like uh, it was it basically he was a working man's ballet. Yeah. You know, you could put music to Jimmy. You know, picking it up on the halfway line. A lot, of, a lot of these goal scorers, they they rely on people going down the line and you know whipping balls in the box and getting on the end of crosses and finish it off. But Jimmy would pick it up on the halfway line and and glide by people. You know, there wasn't much of him. Uh, uh, wonderful, and he was a wonderful man as well. He had a wonderful sense of humour. Um, he used to swear at me when I used to approach him. <laughs> um, I, I've been over to him a few times and asked him for his autograph. I always ask him for his autograph, and he used to swear at me. And I said, Jimmy, look, you've got to do it. And I'd, I'd do it on a £5 note or a £10 note. One time I had a young lady with me, I said, look, you I was actually Lester Pickett was there, and I had Lester Pickett sign on one on, on the on, on the front of the note, and I said, "Look, I've got the greatest jockey now. I want the greatest goal scorer on there." And he swore at me. He said, "Go away!" And uh, but I wouldn't I wouldn't leave him until he signed it. He was such a lovely man. He had a great sense of humour, um, but and he was uh, he was Bobby Moore's best friend, and Bobby I love so. You know, I'm, a, I'm not a bad judge about, you know, good people staying together. So, it, it, yeah, I, I, I think they're doing a documentary on him, but I think it's, you know, it will remind kids and young young people how, how good this fellow was, but I think they've left it a little late, you know. But you've always said that football does tend to do that, to put the statue up after they've passed away rather than do it before when, when it can yeah, make a, a big yeah. difference to, to the player. But Jimmy Greaves, to, to all and sundry, was the greatest, well, still is the greatest and always will be, greatest goal scorer that this country has ever seen. We will never see another Jimmy Greaves. And you're right. I mean, I didn't see Jimmy play, but I've seen video footage and, yeah. and stuff and yeah. watched films and I've listened to Jimmy Greaves talk. I mean, I'm, I get quite engrossed in, in, in players and different football situations whether they be teams, clubs and or what have you and, and Jimmy is somebody that I've always loved and, and from the times of Saint and Greaves as a kid growing up watching him on the telly and watching him reincarnation really and reinventing uh, himself in different guises but Greaves are you right couldn't make a goal out of anything and I remember watching the elusive ghost which one of your old pals um, Tommy Doherty's nipper was um, uh, was talking about it when he played for Burnley against um, Tottenham and uh, Greavesy Tommy Doherty he, he, phoned, he used to phone up Michael every Friday before the game and says 
where are you tomorrow? You, are you playing Tottenham? Um, Jimmy Groove, Jim, doing a man-to-man. He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, he'll talk to you. Just ignore him. And he said, yeah, OK, Dad. So he, he went through the whole lot. And sure enough, Groove, he, he talked him all through the game. And and and, and uh, Michael didn't acknowledge Groove. And then there was a throw-in. And, and, and Jimmy says, Doc, looks like it's going to rain. So he looks up, the throwing's come in, he's out his feet and he's put the ball in the back of the net and scored the winner. <laughs> and when they're coming off the pitch, he's got Michael, didn't your dad tell tell you not to talk to me on the pitch? And he said, from that day forward, I never spoke to my dad on a Friday night. But again, that was Jimmy Greaves. Out of anything, he was always thinking all the time, wasn't he, on his toes, Greaves? Like... Well, it's... Um... When you're a genius, you've yeah. got it's, it's like anything else. You've got to have a you've got to have a sense of humour. Jimmy had a great sense of humor. Yeah. I see him at a chat show one night. He was he had that lovely thing about Jimmy. He had no ego either. You know, yeah. it wasn't about Jimmy. It was about the game and people and who he loved. And, and that's the sadness about him being so unwell. Yeah. Uh, really is, you know. Um, but again, you know. Uh, what we speak about when things go wrong, I've had things go wrong with me in my life. And, you know, what happened to him in the World Cup in 66 was tragic. You know, it, he was broken hearted, you know. He was, our, he was our best, you know, Bobby Moore was our best captain of all time, but he was our best, he was our best player. Mm. And he, he, he should have been the one, you know. It, it, uh, you know, it, it's scary and it's frightening and it's sad, you know, that he should have been the one you know, running around with a cup, really. And I see him uh, several times. I watch it and I see him in the background, you know, very, very sad. Again, and, you know. again another case of if only, isn't it? It's, inc- it's incredible, really. And, and that, that cruel twist of fate prevents, arguably, like you say, arguably the great, well, not arguably, the greatest goal scorer of all time, not running around the pitch with the World Cup. It's just incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, he was. I mean, he was. Yeah. There wasn't There wasn't another, there wasn't another player in the world no. anywhere near Jimmy. Mm. You know, it's, um, and it doesn't matter. I remember when he left Chelsea, um, they said he was the greatest player ever, and then he went to AC Milan. He, he he didn't like it there. He, because they, you know, he couldn't do what he wanted to do. He couldn't go down the pub or whatever. Um, and then he'd come back and Tottenham bought him for £99,999. Yeah. Because uh, Bill Nuggerson refused to pay six figures. Yeah. So, and then he went there and he was absolutely magic, you know. And uh, I was lucky enough in, in my real debut, I played against him and it was... It was just he's he didn't do much that night, but it was just an inspiration to be on the field with him was unbelievable. But again, you know, going to Tottenham and arguably Tottenham's greatest ever player as well. And not only were Tottenham a great team, but they're just on the back of winning the double. And another Tottenham uh, lad, well, an East End boy that managed Tottenham, Harry Redknapp, is uh, Sandback Summer. Uh, Sandbanks Summer, which starts next week uh, on the 19th. I think it's next Wednesday, 8 o'clock on ITV. Uh, another pal of yours as well, Harry Redknapp. Yeah, I think he owns Sandbanks now. I, I think he owns. <laughs> He's never-ending, he... eh? I mean, he owns the jungle. 
<laughs> he owns everything. The only thing that he did know was Birmingham City. <laughs> was the, the only time he hasn't been successful during his whole career. Any Barry, which is typical of if only with me, with my team, Birmingham City. Well, the only reason he went to Birmingham because he thought Hall Green was still on. <laughs> and Perry Barr. <laughs> yeah, and Perry Barr. He didn't, he didn't go up there for the football, I can assure you. <laughs> he, you know, it, it must have, uh, and there, unless Warwick races were on or something like that, that, that was Harry. But uh, no, he, he's, um, Harry, Harry was, uh, Harry's t- terrific. You know, he was one of the managers you like because uh, he, he, he liked people, you know, he, he's my kind of manager because he didn't believe in coaching and he didn't, he didn't believe in certain things. He didn't, he just wanted you to go and play, you know, that was it. It was, in fact, I was talking to Paul today and I was, I don't, I was just been reading his book, Paul Merson. Okay. And, uh, and he, he tells a story in his book. I knew this, I know the story. You might've heard the story, but, um, while he was playing for Portsmouth, um, he said to Harry one day, look, he said, Harry, he says, uh, I'm a little, I feel a little bit tired. He says, uh, I think I need a break. So uh, he said, well, he said, you're only coming in three days a week anyway. Because he, he, I think he just left Villa or something, hadn't he? And he'd gone, gone. He said, well, you're only doing three days a week. You're coming down. And he said, well, he said, but Harry, he says, I, I, I'm just feel, feel a little bit tired. He said, well, go on. He says, have two weeks off. He says, uh, he said, I've been gambling too much. He says, so I'm going to go book myself into the Priory to the uh, Gambling Anonymous. He says, well, you go and do that. Well done. He says, that's good. He says, and when you come back, I want you spot on. But do some training when you're at the Priory. Just do a bit of jogging and tick over. He says, anyway, he says, I've, I've gone. And he said, I've gone home. He said, to the Mrs. Pack your bags. We're going to Barbados. <laughs> so... He says, um, we're sitting on the beach in Barbados. He says, this fella comes by and he says, uh, Paul, how are you? He says, yeah, I'm good. He says, uh, oh, you enjoyed yourself? He said, yeah, lovely. He said, I've got a nice glass of wine there, a bottle of wine. He says, I'll join you. He said, yeah, sit down and have a drink. He said, we sat there. We had an hour together. And he said, that's good. He says, and as he left, he went, oh, by the way, he said, I'm good friends with Harry. <laughs> So Merson said, I thought to himself, oh, my God, what's going on now? He's going to tell Harry. I'm supposed to be in the Priory. So um, he said, I'll get back. And uh, I I found out that this fella had phoned Harry. And Harry says, "Uh, I've just seen one of your players. And he went, well, who would that be? He said, Paul Merson. He says, oh, don't tell me you got an addiction as well. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, he said he's in a clinic. He's, he's addicted to gambling and drinking and everything. else. will be of addiction. He said, you got it. What addiction you got? He said, no. He said, I'm in Barbados. He said, I'm sitting with you on the beach. He went, oh. So anyway, Merson gets back and uh, he's uh, and he's expecting, I'm, I'm expecting a right bollocking to marry and uh, he said, I got home and now he never said a word. He said, he, he just, he, he didn't say a word to me. He said, he knew that I had to perform. And I and, and he said, he never, ever brought the subject up. But, and for me, that's great management. Yes. You know, if that had been me at Arsenal with Terry Neal, he would have, it would have been all over the papers. It would have been all over there because he wanted to be the big I am. But Harry played it shrewdly and he went, 
no, I won't mention it because he knows he owes me one, you know, and uh, terrific, terrific management, really. Different class, Al, different class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that brings us to the end of part seven of our podcast, My Life, My Music with the Governor, Alan Hudson. Even in my quietest moment, we're going to play out with, what's the story behind that track finally, Al? Well, it's um, another great, great uh, super trance. Uh, Supertram track, and it's um, and I think it's um, it gets you away from you get your highs, you get your lows, and this is you know when you 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 can switch this one on and sit down and reflect on your life if that's the right thing to do. Um, it is a, a most beautiful song, and I mean these these lads they do they can turn out a song. They they just. You know, they're they're never they've never been known as the Beatles or the Beach Boys or nothing like that. But they they really are a, a truly magnificent group. And uh, you know, it, you have to sit down and listen to it. And if you've never heard of them, it makes it even better because it's just it's just it's scary. It's uncanny. It's it's uh, and it reminds me of my life. You know, and and that's what we do, don't we? In my life, my my football, my music. And wonderful to put it on with your earphones in, because I did that the other Saturday when I was listening to all these tracks, and I was looking up to see where the birds were. <laughs> There's just great <laughs> acoustics on that song. So till next time, Al, thanks so much. It's an absolute joy doing this podcast with you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, those were the days, my friend. Uh, I thought they never end, mate. <laughs> Cheers, Al. Speak soon. Good luck, Paul. Cheers, Good luck, pal. Bye-bye. Even though Bye-bye. the sun is shining, well, I feel the rain. Here it comes again, dear. And even when you showed me, my heart was out of tune. But there's a shadow of doubt that's not letting me find you too soon. The music that you gave me The language of my soul Lord, I want to be with you Won't you let me come in from the cold